we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Do you want to be stored away like an old sofa during your golden years? I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to this episode of America Out Loud Pulse. People are living longer, and by 2030, about one in five Americans will be over 65 years of age. Unfortunately, around 60% of adults suffer from at least one chronic condition, and 42% suffer from multiple conditions. And among those who are 60 or older, at least 80% have one chronic illness. And 50% of those have two. In other words, when you get old, little things start to fall apart. But some of these conditions, heart disease, cancer, stroke, dementia, Parkinson's, uh, kidney disease, hearing loss, blindness, COPD and bronchitis, all of these things start to afflict people, especially over 65. And the sad part is many, many people over the age of 65 will need paid care. On TV, we hear ads over and over and over for life insurance with guaranteed acceptance, no physical exam. You can get it in your 70s and it's under $10 a month. But the truth is the death benefit on these policies is about five to $700 and hardly pay cab fare to your funeral. We rarely hear ads for the type of insurance we actually need and that would improve our lives. And that's long-term care insurance. Ideally, our life's medical trajectory would be good health for many years and then just keel over one day and meet our maker without going through a period of debilitation. Unfortunately, all of us won't be that lucky. And I would venture to guess that most people cringe at the thought of spending their last years on this earth in a nursing home. It doesn't sound like a pleasant thought, not to mention it can cost up to $100,000 a year. And with that kind of cost, many people look to the government to pay their nursing home bill. But given the low reimbursement the government pays to these facilities, and the low pay for the workers in the long-term care industry, it makes us question, what kind of quality of care do people in these institutions receive? My guest today and I will discuss the ins and outs of long-term care and what we should do to protect ourselves. Steve Moses is the president of the Center for Long-Term Care Reform, the center promotes universal access to top quality long-term care by encouraging private financing as an alternative to Medicaid dependency for most Americans. Previously, Mr. Moses was president of the Center for Long-Term Care Financing, director of research for long-term care, and a senior analyst for the Inspector General 
of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He also was a Peace Corps volunteer in Venezuela. He's widely recognized as an experienced expert and innovator in the field of long-term care. His recent monograph on the issue is called Long-Term Care, The Problem. Welcome to the show, Steve Moses. Well, thank you for having me. Well, this is a topic. It's kind of like we've talked on this show about things related to death and transplants and all that stuff. And sometimes people don't want to have to think about certain these things, but we've got to talk about it and let people know the landscape and what's out there. So first, can you just tell us what exactly is long-term care? Well, long-term care encompasses the medical and social services and assistance or support that people may need when they're no longer able to take care of themselves. Uh, Maybe they need assistance with eating or transferring from one place to another or using the bathroom. Uh, Long-term care need can develop for any number of uh, reasons, illness, uh, injury, but I'm most focused on the kind of long-term care that becomes necessary uh, as we get older and frailer, less able to uh, manage our activities of daily living on our own. Well, what do you? What are considered the activities of daily living? And I've seen that as ADLs and some policies and uh, use that as as the uh, yardstick for whether you need long term care. That's right. Uh, well, to name several, uh, there's uh, bathing, uh, eating, transferring, using the bathroom. Um, Those are the big ones, Mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes they include others, uh, and also what are called instrumental activities of daily living, such as managing your own finances. These are things that you people often need help with, but aren't necessarily considered uh, part of the activities of daily long uh, of daily living that. Uh, engage long-term care services. Well, how did the whole industry of long-term care, having somebody pay for it, get started? I I think about talking to especially people from some of the Asian countries who are shocked at the idea that you would put somebody in a nursing home, that they take care of their own elderly. And if, you know, an old lady doesn't have her own grandchildren, the lady next door's grandchildren will take care of her and on and on. And so certainly in America, we don't seem to have that same sort of take care of your grandma in your house kind of mentality. How did this industry get started here? 
<laughs> well, we don't have it anymore, but we did it one time. Back in the day, families looked after their own. Uh, we had larger families, several generations living together uh, in big houses. Uh, but uh, times have changed. The economy has changed. Uh, over time, people came to uh, receive benefits from the government in the form of, oh, for example, Social Security, which enabled older people to pay for uh, residential care. And once that financing source was there and families were no longer able to uh, support uh, the, the uh, older generation, uh, it came to be that uh, the nursing homes that were there at one time, uh, and we've had them from the beginning, but they tended to be kind of mom and pop operations. But as people had the revenue to pay for residential care, uh, the industry grew. It came became more corporatized, large companies managing hundreds of nursing homes. And then in 1965, when Medicaid came along and started paying for uh, nursing home care exclusively, uh, and not only for the custodial care that people need, but for their laundry and their uh, room and board and so on, uh, it became the principal venue to receive long-term care. And it was provided by the government, funded by the government, and it had the effect of desensitizing to the, the public to the need for long-term care, resulting in their ending up without other protections, such as savings or insurance that would have broadened the possibilities for their care. Most people would rather receive care at home, but the principal alternative that enables people to get care without having to pay for it themselves is government. And what government pays for through Medicaid is principally nursing home care. Well, that's, you know, it... <laughs> And in medicine, so many of these uh, ideas that come from the government lead you to do things in institutions and in facilities. It took years, and I mean years, before the government with Medicare would pay for colonoscopy as an outpatient. You had to admit people just to get a colonoscopy. I mean, it was the silliest thing. And we were rolling our eyes like, why does this person have to be admitted? Finally, they started paying as an outpatient. But I'm talking years and years, 20, 30 years before Medicare started to recognize certain procedures to be done as an outpatient. And it seems like there's some sort of bias toward going in facilities. Why is that? Well, the government has tried to change that, and uh, there's been a lot of research uh, and political activity along the theme that uh, we ought to be able to take care of people at home cheaper than in an institution, and that's where people would rather get their care. So for the last 30 years, there's been a drive 
to deinstitutionalize and to uh, rebalance cares, <clears throat> care so it's provided more in the home and community instead of in nursing homes. The problem is that in reality, that does not save money. You might think, well, how could it be that people cost $100,000 to be maintained in a nursing home for a year, that couldn't be cheaper just helping them stay at home. It seems like it would be. But in reality, the government has spent a lot of money on home care, while at the same time, nursing home expenditures have remained about the same. And overall, home care and nursing home care uh, for long-term care has continued to uh, ascend in cost uh, very rapidly. It turns out that while it may be possible to take care of people in the home cheaper than in a nursing home for a period of time, uh, what happens is that people ultimately end up needing institutional care because they become sicker and sicker so we end up spending more for home care and still having to pay for nursing home care toward the end of life. Well, this may sound like a dumb question. Why is it so expensive? What what is what drives the cost? Is it is there a lot of fraud in the system? Uh, do institutions overcharge, or what's going on? Well, it is intrinsically expensive to take care of somebody 24 hours uh, a day to ensure that they're uh, kept uh, clean and nourished. Uh, unfortunately, we've funded uh, long-term care principally through a welfare program, a means-tested public assistance program called Medicaid, and Medicaid routinely pays long-term care providers, both home care and nursing home care, only about 70% of the private pay rate, private pay rate being the rate that uh, the, the market itself suggests uh, the cost should be. So Medicaid often pays nursing homes less than the cost of providing the care. So no wonder we have a lot of uh, access and quality program problems in that uh, in that sector. But well, it is intrinsically expensive to take care of a, a lot of people for their entire needs and consider the people who have to provide that care. Uh, they need to monitor, they need to uh, turn, they need to carry and transfer and bathe people who are virtually helpless uh, themselves, the so people in the latter stages of needing long-term care. And they're being expected to do this kind of difficult and often dangerous work uh, at at uh, at very low wages, um, often little more than the minimum wage. Well, what about assisted living? What are what are the gauges that would let somebody be in assisted living versus having to go to a long-term care facility? Well, um, I've described some of the problems associated with nursing home care and why they developed because we were dependent on a welfare program that couldn't afford to pay adequately. 
So about 30 years ago, the public became so disenchanted, so uh, eager to avoid a nursing home that private industry and the private market, not the government, offered a new venue of care, the so-called assisted living facility. And they are lovely and they tend to be more home-like and people gravitated to them. But here's the kicker. Assisted living it was in its origins almost 100% private pay. So what it did was draw out of nursing homes those few residents they had that were not dependent on Medicaid, that were private payers, that were very light care, so-called custodial care, all those people who could afford it left the nursing homes and went to these new wonderful assisted living facilities. However, there's only so many people with the financial wherewithal uh, to do that. Most people still ended up having to uh, take advantage of Medicaid and the medic uh, and and the nurse the nursing home and the Medicaid financing for it. So over time, assisted living facilities had trouble filling their beds, their rooms, because Medicaid continued to provide nursing home care virtually for free. So over time, the assisted living industry is following in the footsteps of the nursing homes and providing more and more Uh, availability to people on Medicaid so that now 16.5% of people in assisted living facilities are receiving Medicaid. Its system is set up, if not on purpose, but at least by effect, to draw people into dependency on government and to discourage the responsible behavior, such as looking ahead to the potential risk and cost of long-term care, planning early, saving, investing, insuring against that risk so you don't end up on Medicaid. Instead, because since 1965, we've sent the message that if you ignore the risk, avoid premiums for private insurance, Wait and see if you ever need care. Maybe you'll die with your boots on. But if you do need expensive long-term care, then the government will pay for it. Well, no wonder nobody worries about long-term care when they're young, healthy, and affluent enough to do something about it, and they ultimately end up on Medicaid. So it is these perverse incentives in public policy that result in the utterly ineffectual and corrupt uh, system we have today. Wow. Well, one more system where the government's tentacles come in and ruin what could be a good thing. When we get back from the break, I do want you to explain the difference, which some people don't realize about Medicare and what it pays for in rehab facilities and extended care facilities, because a lot of people are easily fooled. They think Medicare pays for long-term care, which it doesn't. It has little rules, and we'll go into that after 
the break. Okay. As usual, I'm going to talk about Cofix RX. I still use it. Cofix RX is a nasal spray that helps fight off bacteria and viruses. The main ingredients are iodine, xylitol. Both of them are powerhouses against these germs that get up our nose and then eventually down into our lungs and make us sick. And I use Cofix. I, I have allergies, so I feel like I'm probably more susceptible to getting something. And just because COVID, thank goodness, is going out of the news and kind of winding down and we're getting milder strains. Colds, good old-fashioned colds are still out there. So we have to just try to keep ourselves healthy. We know nothing is 100%, but it's like using an airbag in a car. You try to do everything you can to keep yourself safe. One of the things, of course, I love about it is that Cofix RX was invented in the USA and it's manufactured in the USA. You can buy it in drugstores, health food stores, or you right on our page on the website. There's a little Cofix RX box you can click on, read more about it, and um, buy it there if you like. I do recommend it. I've been using it now for, oh gee, probably a year and have been very pleased with the results. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code OUTLOUD and get 20% off. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. So, let's get back to the show. We're going to talk about the problem with Medicare and make sure people are warned as to what Medicare pays for when it comes to going into a long-term facility versus the hospital. Well, Medicare uh, funding does not apply to long-term care, which we define as those uh, services I mentioned earlier lasting for three months or more. Medicare funding for nursing homes and home care is restricted to uh, shorter term uh, acute care and uh, rehabilitation. But Medicare 
financing of those services has a tremendous impact and creates a big danger for the broader issue of long-term care. Well, how can that be? Well, I mentioned earlier that most long-term care is funded by Medicaid, both in nursing home and home care. And uh, Medicaid pays providers often less than the cost of providing the care. Well, how can businesses operate providing decent long-term care services when they're not even paid enough through the principal payer to meet their basic expenses? No profit. Well, that's where Medicare comes in. Uh, so also does Social Security in an interesting way, but we can talk to that later. Medicare pays nursing homes and home health agencies uh, much more generously than Medicaid does, uh, often giving them uh, profit margins of 10 to 15, even 20 percent. So while nursing homes don't have as large a census, resident census uh, on Medicare, as they do on Medicaid, Medicare pays so much more that it makes it feasible for them to meet their expenses and still get a little profit, uh, despite the fact that Medicaid pays so little. So Medicare is critical to long-term care, even though it doesn't pay directly for long-term care services. So that so just so people know, you can go into a nursing home after Medicare. Let's say you have hip, your hip replaced or shoulder replaced or whatever, then you can go in the nursing home and that's under <laughs> Medicare. But if you're in the position like we were discussing earlier, where you have some chronic illness and you're frail and debilitated, that's not covered by your Medicare. So don't think that Medicare is going to cover that. It's uh, unfortunate. One of the biggest misunderstandings in the whole field of long-term care is that roughly half of the public thinks that if they ever need it, Medicare pays for long-term care. It does not, but here's the irony. Medicaid does. And so the public is more correct about what's actually happening than many of the so-called experts and uh, analysts. The public doesn't know who pays for long-term care. They don't know if it's Medicaid, Medicare, or Santa Claus, but they've got a pretty good idea that they aren't at risk for long-term care, even though they don't know who pays and they're not planning on someone else paying. The fact that Medicaid has paid for most expensive long-term care since 1965 enables the public's ignorance and denial uh, so that if they do nothing to prepare they end up protected by government. Of course, then, if they have to rely on government, they have to take with it all of the deficiencies associated with dependency 
on Medicaid? Well, this is the part, and, and I don't know how it is in other countries. I certainly don't know any details of how other countries' long-term care works other than people taking care of their own. But we tend not to think about the future in America. I think about a lot of things. Uh, our savings are terrible for the average person. And for some, they just don't have enough money at the end of the month to save. But for others who do make plenty of money, they don't have that as a priority to set it aside. And as you say, because, well, I'll let the government take care of me, or they don't even think about it. And then when the moment comes, their poor family scurrying around trying to figure out what to do. I'd like you to, you know, to comment on that and and um, just how do we get people to get their heads out of the sand? Well, we need to understand first why their heads are in the sand. And I think it has to do with public policy ever since the progressive era, era uh, starting with Social Security and then later with uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and, oh, all of the different programs that the government has set up with the objective, ob objective of eliminating risk in people's lives. In other words, we have been receiving the message that you don't have to worry about saving for retirement. You'll have Social Security. You don't have to worry about health care and old age. Medicare will be there for you. Uh, don't worry about long-term care. We've got the Medicaid program. And even though it's supposed to be for low-income people, uh, by the time you need it, you're likely to be low enough income and have few enough assets to qualify. So this well-intentioned message to show people that they're protected has had the effect of undercutting their sense of personal responsibility uh, and individual effort, which was so strong during the 19th century in the United States. Our, you know, our uh, ethic of hard work and personal responsibility. We have chipped away at that. And the terrible irony is that now we're about to face the consequences of that as these huge government programs designed to protect us are on the verge of insolvency themselves with really hundreds of trillions of dollars of unfunded liability in the system uh, that ensure that right when people need it, after all, we're getting older and the baby boom generation starts turning 85 in, 30, in 2031, exactly when Social Security and Medicare are supposed to reach insolvency. In other words, just when we need those government programs that have been promised to us, they are going to recede and they will either disappear, probably not. They will keep paying what they pay. But because of the effect of inflation, uh, the value of the services that they provide will be severely undercut. So I am very concerned 
that through its well-intentioned programs, the government has undercut our ability to take care of ourselves and will not be there to take care of us as promised when the time comes. And it's not that far away, no more than a decade. Well, one of the things that, you know, people wonder, well, why is it insolvent? What have we done? We know the government wastes money. Oh, my goodness. I did a show, I think, on waste. I don't. It's and I think we've all seen it. But one of the things that I always think of when I think about these unfunded liabilities is one, when they came up with the whole idea of Social Security, it was what Kaiser Wilhelm thought of this whole idea. And at the time, people weren't living this long. People were dead by 60. And that's why they made the age when you would collect on it 65. And so the assumption is most people wouldn't collect on it. And when Social Security was first uh, proposed and enacted, there were 35 workers for each person who would be collecting up Social Security. Now I think it's like two and a half or three workers for each person on Social Security. So you look at that and we live until our 80s. So we have 20 years at least living longer and one-tenth at least less people feeding into the system. It's a giant Ponzi scheme and we're dependent on the current workers to fund the people who are retirement age. And if we don't have any workers, and as you said, the inflation is chipping away at the value of the dollar, I I don't know how it is sustained. <laughs> Let me say, I couldn't have said it better myself as you went through that litany, uh, those exact same figures and numbers and arguments uh, were on the tip of my tongue as well. So yes, we're, we're in a mess. We're faced with a Ponzi scheme uh, that younger people don't think they will ever benefit from. Uh, those two folks who are working now instead of the 35 paying into social, social security, <clears throat> it's a huge mess. And it's all, all about to hit the fan, as they say. Uh, and I think that uh, decade, the, the next decade, the 2030s, uh, will tell the tale, and we will find out if there's anything left of the great American spirit that made the country great in the first place uh, to help it survive as these forces uh, come to the fore. Well, one of the things that we know is out there is long-term care insurance, but you just don't hear it advertised. I said in the opening, you know, you hear all these things about life insurance when you're ancient and, you know, can pay your final expenses. And, you know, at that point, you kind of feel like, who cares? You want something that's going to help you while you're alive. And the idea of low government payments. And, you know, it's too hard to get rid of a government program, but all they can do is pay low enough. And then the facilities will get worse and worse and worse and the care will get worse and worse and worse. And who wants to look forward to that? I certainly don't. Whether the government says they're going to pay for it or not, it's kind of like, who, I don't, I can't even tell you the visuals I get 
of those storage facilities, you know, that you see when you drive down the freeway. And there, there was actually one called Life Storage. And I thought, oh, is that going to be what the nursing homes are? Well, insurance is the logical solution to this. But consider the problem. <clears throat> the purpose of insurance is to replace the small risk of a catastrophic loss with the certainty of an affordable premium. So it's a perfect fit. Uh, for long-term care. It's a relatively small risk that you will have huge long-term care expenses later in life, but it is a significant enough risk that absent other factors, you would plan for it and you would purchase the insurance. But what are those other factors? Well, as I mentioned, if you ignore the risk, avoid the premiums, wait and see if you need it, and you do need long-term care someday, and it's very expensive, the government pays. Well, no wonder people aren't very worried about this. Of course, long-term care insurance isn't cheap. <clears throat> if every 10th house burned down, fire insurance wouldn't be cheap either. But people would buy it if it weren't for the perverse incentives in public policy that discourage people from planning for this risk. And it's not just the fact that government gives away long-term care. There are other factors involved as well. For example, if you know anything about long-term care insurance, you know that lately the premiums have gone up sometimes two, three times what they were in the beginning. That gets blamed on the insurance industry. Gee, why didn't they charge enough at the beginning? Well, what happened was that the federal government, in the form of the Federal Reserve, forced interest rates down to almost zero and kept them there for the better part of 20 years. Now, how does insurance work? Long-term care insurance works by companies collecting your premiums, investing them, and then paying you benefits if you become eligible later on. But when the federal government forced interest rates down to nothing, the carriers could not get the returns on their investment that would enable them to pay the premiums. So what did they do? They had to increase the premiums. Uh, the premiums so that they could pay the benefits later on. This is another way the government destroyed the market for private insurance. And as a result, we're finding our, ourselves now with most people uninsured and dependent on government. And I would just quickly observe how irresponsible it is of the government and how how responsible it was of the private sector to do what it did. It raised premiums to be able to pay benefits later on. The government has not done that. It has all these unfunded liabilities in Social Security and Medicare and has done nothing to shore up those programs. So while the private sector did the responsible thing, the government has done totally irresponsible um, measures, no measures whatsoever to shore up those programs. 
Well, thank you. When we come back from the break in our last segment, I just like you to explain, I we don't have the benefit of a chalkboard of how people who have money end up qualifying for Medicaid that is supposed to be, the principle behind it is for people who don't have any money. And tell me how that whole system works. I think people would be interested to find out. So That's we'll talk. Been the focus of my career for 40 years doing something about that. So well, I'll be happy to explain. Good, good, good. Well, right now, I want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We've got the free apps on Apple and Android and Alexa. We're on every weekday at 5 p.m. with an encore at 11 p.m. and on iHeartRadio the next day at 8 a.m. All shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours. That's one of the good things about the show because everybody can't stop and what they're doing and listen at 5 The episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple and Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy. Bookmark AmericaOutloud.com. The wonderful thing about our show, and you know we've just passed our first year anniversary, is we've got different people on every night. Mondays with me, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays, we have concerned doctors, Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Outloud. Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reich. And we also have Nurses Out Loud, and they're on every day, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So we've got a lot of medical themes for you to listen to. And thanks again for listening. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. A wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. So before the break, we were going to talk about how this system works and how people get Medicaid to pay for long-term care and What are some of the, uh, one of the things that fascinates me are monies that Medicaid lets you keep, things that are exempt from Medicaid. Can you go through all that stuff for us, Mr. Moses? Sure, I'll be happy to. The myth surrounding Medicaid financing of long-term care is that you can't get it until you've spent down your entire life savings and arrive at total impoverishment. Well, if that were the case, obviously people would be worried about long-term care. They would plan ahead and they would buy insurance, but it is not the case. It's what I call the fallacy of impoverishment. 
Now, how does Medicaid long-term care eligibility work? It considers three things. One, you have to have a medical need for long-term care. Okay, set that aside and let's focus on the financial qualifications. Those are broken down between income and assets. Now, you have to have very low income to qualify for Medicaid, only $841 a month, the so-called supplemental security income monthly payment. But it's a more complicated than that, because if you need long-term care, they start with your income and they subtract your medical and long-term care expenses from it. And if after you've spent that, you're down at that $841 a month uh, limit, uh, you're eligible based on income. Now, the vast majority of people who are old enough to need long-term care also have very high medical and long-term care expenses. So it's not difficult for them to qualify based on income. So income, even though technically you have to be poor to get it, the way they calculate it enables people uh, with very large income, $70,000, $80,000 a year to qualify for Medicaid based on income. Well, what about assets? Well, there, technically, according to the law, and this is what confuses everyone, you may not have more than $2,000 in countable assets. What are countable assets? Well, your bank account, <clears throat> any stocks and bonds, that sort of thing that you own, anything that's immediately negotiable is uh, treated as a countable asset. But there are unlimited exempt assets. So let's say you've got $100,000. You could have a home equity uh, of between 688000 and $1,033,000, depending on the state. That home equity isn't counted. You can have one automobile of unlimited value. And if you've got a junker now, just get rid of it and buy a Rolls Royce. Um, you can have unlimited personal belongings and assets. They don't even count those. So if you've got an extra $50,000, buy a diamond ring and say it was an heirloom that grandma passed on. Uh, you can have unlimited term life insurance. You can have one business, including the capital and cash flow of unlimited value. And I could go on and on. But if after dealing with all of that and using countable assets to buy exempt assets, which is the single most common method of so-called Medicaid planning. If you still have too much, then there are special annuities, so-called Medicaid compliant annuities. Uh, there are special trusts, medical assistance trusts uh, that you can use to qualify. And of course, there are there is a... Um, a a large, there, there are many attorneys who specialize in artificially impoverishing affluent clients in order to qualify them for Medicaid. <clears throat> so that really is how people with substantial wealth end up on Medicaid 
uh, and preserve most of their wealth uh, to pass to their heirs. And the heirs are important because this system creates a terrible, perverse incentive, tearing families apart where they're faced with a choice of do we pay for top quality long-term care for mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, or do we take all of their assets using these techniques of Medicaid planning and leave them dependent on whatever the welfare program can afford to pay, mostly nursing home care. There are 665,000 people waiting to get home care from Medicaid uh, because of the way the system's set up. So again, the, the system is utterly perverse and the argument can be made that it is uh, an example of structural racism that remains in the system uh, in that uh, the, the folks who get hurt most by this system are not the wealthy who have access to financial planners, Medicaid planners, CPAs, and so on, and they learn the ropes and their wealth is protected, whereas lower income people are crushed in a matter of weeks by the rules designed to ensure uh, that people have to spend their own resources. So it is, as I say, I think a corrupt system and I've uh, struggled to improve it for four decades ever since I worked with Medicaid and the Healthcare Financing Administration uh, in the 80s. And we've had some success uh, with changing the law in 1993 and again in 2005 to try to restructure the system so that the benefits go mostly to those in need and still encourages the affluent to plan ahead and take personal responsibility. But as you can see from what I've said now, uh, that's not the way the system operates yet. And that's why we are hoping with a new report I'll be coming out with, Long-Term Care, the solution uh, to promote public policy to fix these problems. It's one of those things, you know, you feel kind of like the government screws us over in many ways. And sometimes you feel like, for taxes, they take too many and spend them on things that we're not interested in spending our tax dollars on. Obviously, we live in a good country and we should pay some taxes. The question is how much and all this whole whole nother discussion of where taxes should go and whatnot. And then you find out that people with way more money than you are somehow, and I almost hate to use the term gaming the system because it's not gaming. The system is set up where you can quote unquote impoverish yourself and use the government money. And I'm sitting here thinking as you're explaining that, it's like, well, I paid into the system. It's how as a California resident, I felt going to UC San Francisco 
and my tuition was incredibly low as an in-state resident. And it's like, well, my parents paid taxes for all those years to California, so now I'm reaping the benefit. So if you paid your federal taxes and think, well, okay, I'll reap the benefit. I'll impoverish my, myself and get on Medicaid. And whenever I think that and somebody tells me that, I just think, well, do you really want that to be your only recourse? The whole idea of freedom is that you should have some choice in the matter. And if you leave it all up to Medicaid, you won't have any choice. Every facility doesn't take Medicaid. They usually don't kick you out. Now, let me know that if I'm correct, if you started off paying private and run out of money, that they're not going to kick you out. They'll go ahead and take the Medicaid. But there's a lot of the nicer facilities don't take Medicaid when you first walk in the door. That's right. And there are many uh, deficiencies associated with depending on Medicaid. The problem is that people don't think about those 30 years earlier when they should have been thinking about it and planning to avoid that uh, eventuality. When it comes time that they need care, oftentimes it's not the senior who's now cognitively impaired or so frail they can't manage on their own. It's their adult children, their heirs who are making the decisions. So you don't want to get caught in the trap where your only option is to depend on a welfare program that pays your providers less than the cost of providing the care with your family fighting over who's going to get your wealth instead of it going to pay for your care. Utterly perverse incentives in the system to discourage responsible behavior uh, and leave people dependent on a system that does not properly do the job for them. Well, and I think what you talk about when you talk about issues that arise in families, a lot of people think, and I'm sure they're sitting here listening, oh, I would never do that. Oh, oh my kids would never do that. Well, I hate to say the reality is that's what people do. Working in the hospital and ICU and working with patients in their last days, I've seen families be so ugly and so greedy. It It's sickening. And, you know, I'm sure that parent thought years ago, oh, my kids would never do that to me. They'd never shove me in a horrible nursing home just to save money. So, I hate to say, my father always said, when the chips are down, you only have yourself to depend on. So you've got to look out for yourself when you are able to look out for yourself. Do it or well, we wouldn't say that everybody would do that, but certainly it is a factor in the long-term care ecosystem. And uh, the best thing people can do is to understand uh, this uh, system, how it works, and do their best to prepare for long-term care so that they don't end up uh, with families dependent on, uh, as you say, gaming the long-term care system. Because it doesn't uh, it doesn't redound to the benefit of anyone in the long run. 
Well, and I just think when you we you always have to look at the whole picture. You'd like to think that your last years, you know, no nobody wants to be sick. And you know, my father was a big avid tennis player when he'd take every Wednesday afternoon off from the office and and because his practice was open six days a week. And that's when he'd go off and play tennis. And when he got older, he said, this is what I want to happen to me. I want to have a heart attack in the middle of the tennis court when I'm having a great time and have a sign that says, do not resuscitate. And he he practically got his wish, which was nice. And um, it's, I mean, I think a lot of people would like the good old days where, yes, he died in his sleep. And that we could have something pleasant like this. We could be at home, like when you read about some movie star, somebody who dies at 90, he died at home with his family around him. We'd all like to be able to do that. But that takes planning that you you hearken back to the old days of personal responsibility. So I guess that's what we have to look at. You've got a dollar sign on one side and something that's priceless on the other, family, harmony, your tranquility, and you have to weigh those against each other. Well, let people know what your website is so they can read some more about this issue. The website is uh, centerltc.com. If you go to the link for articles, speeches, and reports, you can find 40 years of published uh, material that uh, we've put out. And I think you'll find it of interest. I hope so. And uh, I'm available. I'm always eager to talk about this issue at uh, uh, smoses at centerltc.com. So let me hear from you if you still have questions. Well, thank you very much. And of course, I'm hoping you'll agree to come back after your next article, Long Monograph, Long-Term Care the solutions. And so we'll, maybe we can be a bit more upbeat on our next visit. <laughs> well, we know what's wrong. We know how to fix it. The challenge is getting enough politicians to agree. Uh, and I don't know if we'll be able to be more optimistic. It all depends on uh, how the politics go in the next presidential election. Well, we shall see. Thank you again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you uh, for having me. Well, and thank you, everybody, for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. And you know, we do have our feature. If you do have questions, you can send them in to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse, and we'll get you an answer. And send the email. First names are fine. And there's a little um, place kind of down at the bottom of the page where you can go ahead and send your questions. So we love to hear from you. So thanks again for listening. And whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.